Yeah. So Sarah and I have been working together now for quite a number of years when we co-wrote our workbook that goes with my main book, The Anti-Racist Heart Together. And one of the things that we realized was that we love, love, love the idea of being part of tearing down white supremacy. But one of the challenges is how people have been doing it. Not everyone, right? But some folks. And for a lot of folks, it's like, I don't know how to show up and hold, like if I'm a black person, how can I show up in ways that hold compassion for the places where I am not speaking up, where I'm silent in the face of white supremacy and racism, or the places where I speak up with a lot more anger and rage and, and maybe do more harm? If I'm a white person, how can I show up in ways that hold myself with care for the mistakes I make, the harm that I've caused, and still show up and stay engaged in the process? And the class is meant to address both sides, like both the folks from the global majority and white folks in finding a path forward so that we can work together. Because it's not going to be one side or the other. It's not the, only the responsibility of global majority folks to end white supremacy. And we are not going to leave it only to white folks to end it because it's going to end up not necessarily addressing the needs that we have, right? So how can we empower folks to hold themselves with the kind of consciousness and care that they need to work together to attack this problem? Welcome to episode 75 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact and to shine a light on all the good happening in a world often hyper-focused on the negative. Today's episode features Dr. Roxy Manning, author of How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, co-author of The Anti-Racist Heart, clinical psychologist and specialist in nonviolent communication, and much more. Dr. Manning and I discussed her immigration to the U.S. at a young age and the bullying that accompanied it, her education and career journeys, a health scare, learning to set boundaries, how learning others' perspectives can change your mindset, the path to anti-racist conversations, and much more. Here is Dr. Roxy Manning on People Are the Answer. Roxy, thank you so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into your work. It'd be great if you could start off by just telling the audience who you are, where you're based, and what your current role is. So thanks, Jeffrey. Um, I'm in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I have essentially two lines of work. I continuous, continue to work as a clinical psychologist, but I also work as a nonviolent communication trainer and assessor. Awesome. And in life in general, what would you say motivates you? Making the world better for the next generation. I love that. And certainly feel similarly in that regard. It's a great motivator to have, you know, especially uh, when you're a parent, it, that makes, makes it even more so. Absolutely. I know you're a parent also. And there was something about just reflecting on what my childhood was like and the struggles I had and realizing that we need to do our part to help the next generation have it easier. Speaking of your childhood, you know, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Oh, it was interesting. So I'm an immigrant. I came to the United States when I was seven from Trinidad and Tobago. And I grew up in Harlem and lived there from the time I was seven until I went to my first year of college. Went away for one year, came back. My childhood was challenging. Um, I'm African-American, you're, well, actually I'm Afro-Caribbean. You're, you're podcast guests can't see me. And when I grew up in New York City at that time, 
Harlem was primarily Black folks, but they were generally American Black folks. A lot of the Caribbeans who immigrated to the United States went to Brooklyn. And so I did not fit in. I got beaten up every single day because I sounded, quote, funny. Um, I was very bookish, studied a lot, didn't really know how to fit in the way my siblings did. And I remember, like, I literally got beaten up every single day after school from second grade until fifth grade when I learned that I had to fight back. The other thing that was really interesting about my childhood, and it's not something that I recognized back then, was I got praised a lot for things that in some ways was because I wasn't fitting the stereotype of what Black Americans were like, which is a really toxic thing to be praised about when you think about it, because it meant I... I I eventually had to choose. Am I going to kind of go with the white um, framing of who I was and what I was capable of and what it also implied about black folks, or did I need to find my own path? And so that was a lot of my childhood, figuring out who am I and how do I fit in in these really diverse environments? It sounds like a lot for uh, a young person to take in and to deal with. And I mean, it sounds like all things considered, despite the years of getting beaten up, like you, you handled it pretty well. I did. I mean, I had family every day. <laughs> every day when I got beaten up, my sister would find out who beat me up and then go beat up that person. Not the most effective strategy, um, but I did have family that had my back and that was important. And I've always had a teacher, like every couple of years, a teacher who really believed in me and helped me see that I could be something different than whatever narrative um, any group was trying to put on me. Yeah, I mean, I love that idea and just the concept that one person can really change someone else's life, even if there's so many people that I talk to about this podcast or that I offer to be on it where they like, I don't know if I'm an innovator and in impact. I'm like, well, have you changed one life? You probably have. And like that goes such a long way. Absolutely. And I think one of the sad things, I love communication. That's what I do. But one of the sad things is how many people don't tell other people that you've changed my life. I would not be here because of you. And so people come to us and say, I'm not important. I don't do anything. But they actually don't know the impact that they're having. Yeah, no, I can I can certainly r relate to that on a variety of fronts. And yeah, you know, I try to, try to help people as well, but it just brings to mind a story from a, a former teacher of mine that I had in high school. Uh, you know, I caught up with him within the last few years and, uh, he told me about a, a time that something that I said changed the way he treated students going forward. And I didn't even remember it. You know, wow. what, what he told me, it was really just, I'm happy to, to, to give the specifics. Oh, I, basically. I want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, no, it was basically, um, so teacher I had in ninth grade, you know, one of my favorite teachers ever. And I don't recall the exact specifics, but some, he said something to the effect of, I, I didn't do some homework or I missed something. And he went to my parents and I said to him, Hey, like, couldn't you have just come to me and seen what was up? Like, I thought thought we had a different relationship with that than that. And um, he said ever since that, like, he, he's had that in mind in terms of how he treats the students and treating them, you know, like a little bit more adult-like, I guess. Um, and I didn't even remember it happening. I kind of do now that he told me. But um, just like little things like that, you know, you don't really know the dominoes of what, you're, what you've done and who you've talked to. So I think it's important for everyone to be aware that you're always making an impact. Mm-hmm. Both that you're always making an impact, but for us to tell people when they do. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a very good point is if someone's really made a difference in your life, it's important to share that. I mean, I think receiving that back is such a rewarding thing, you know, and mm -hmm. 
it, it can motivate you to, to just even be in a more positive place. So I, I like that suggestion. Mm. So you, know, you, you had this, this childhood that was, you know, very different. A lot of things were getting thrown your way. You know, was there something that happened at that young age that made you want to be a person that gives back in life? No, this is a really minor thing in some ways, but, you know, I was describing this really difficult childhood where I couldn't find friends. And there were two people who befriended me. One of them was another, a young black, um, an American black person, and her mom was paraplegic. And, you know, I never even had this idea of like, wow, what would that be like? What could you do? But what I remember about her mom was she was the most gifted artist. And she drew these, like, she would make stationery for us for our birthday and would decorate the stationery using her feet. And it was the most exquisitely, like, I still can't do that as an adult with my hands, right? And there was something about never giving up and finding your passion and just doing it, never letting other people's stories about you change you that I so embodied in her mom that was really important to me. And then the other person who changed my life... <laughs> then was one of the kids who used to beat me up. <laughs> it was really amazing. It was a, a boy and he used to beat me up a lot. And I think one day I just was like, Sean, why, why are you doing this? I haven't ever done anything to you. And he's like, I don't know. And I said, could you teach me how to fight? And he did. And we would like go to a corner of the playground and he would teach me how to fight. And finally in fifth grade, after he had taught me how to fight for a semester, I had a fight with this girl who kept beating me up, the one who did it almost every year. And after that, I never got beaten up again. Wow. So it was just something around just like even checking in with people. You know, you're harming me. Why are you doing this? And recognizing that sometimes people don't always know why they're doing the things that they're doing. Yeah, I think that's an important message, especially in today's divisive world. You know, in my opinion, everybody has some good in them. You know, maybe it's buried below trauma. Um, but there's so many people acting in a certain way, keeping this divisiveness in our society. And I think a lot of them just need an opportunity to open up and, and feel some humanity. Yeah. And I think for him, like this divisive world that we have is often about pitting people against each other, right? Like I'm going to succeed or you're going to succeed, but both of us can't. And I think that's what happened for him, that the teachers were so celebrating me when I was a kid and people like him felt like, wait, what about us? We, we get no recognition. And it was through like systemic, systemic structures that I was doing well and they weren't. And so when I said, could you teach me how to fight? I let him see like, you actually have something to contribute. Again, not the thing I would want <laughs> the most, but it was still a way for him to reframe himself in relation to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing it. And um, so once you, you got through school, um, it sounds like you were, you know, very studious. And what was your next step once you graduated high school? Well, I went to Howard University for a year. And Howard University is a historically black college. I wanted to be a doctor then. And I was like, so sure, I'm going to be a doctor. I'd always said I was going to be a doctor since I was seven. Hated chemistry. Realized I am not going to be a doctor. But one of the things that was interesting at Howard, it's like this black school in the middle of a black neighborhood and somehow I decided I was going to be a socialist. So I joined the Socialist Workers Party. I would leave the community and end up finding all of these young white college graduates who would study to be lawyers and doctors, et cetera. 
And I hung out with them. I really wanted to like, even then, like, I'm going to change the world somehow. And what they taught me was, they kept saying, you know, I got this medical degree, I got this law degree, and I hate it. Don't do the thing your parents want you to do. Find a passion that's going to like keep you going for the next 50 years. And that was so helpful, especially as I was just giving up this idea of being a doctor. I did five majors before I finally settled on psychology and realized that this is this is my niche. That's that's great to hear. I mean, not everybody gets that advice and gets the opportunity to sort of explore and Sure, there's there's some people that know what they want to do right away, but having that opportunity to explore and, and being open-minded as you're doing so and then finding the right fit, I think, is, is pretty admirable. Mm, thank you. So you ended up getting your bachelor's degree from the City College of New York. Um, you know, Tell me about that, and then I would love to hear about the work that you started after your bachelor's degree. Sure. So one of the things that's really interesting about this it would be helpful for me to go back and talk about my high school degree just a little bit. Yeah. I went to one of the magnet high schools in New York City for gifted students. So, you know, you take a test, you go to the school, everyone is like really gifted and we do well. Like I'd say most of our students end up going to Ivy's and places like that. And I didn't go because I didn't realize that that was an option for me as a black immigrant. But what it meant was I had a really solid quality education, went to Howard for one year, decided to transfer back to um, city college and be closer to home. And I was also struggling fitting in in Harvard. Like, what does it mean to be black in the United States if I'm black Caribbean? At city college, it was an interesting experience because a lot of the school, it was open education. If you applied, you got in. But it also meant that a lot of the students who were getting in were students who had very bad educational um, experiences leading into college. So you had some kids who were like really brilliant were getting into like the combined MD program. Some kids were really struggling. And that's one of the places where it finally hit me how unjust our educational system is and how a lot of the reasons that we struggle has nothing to do with, you know, what our ability is, but both what people expect of us and the systems that are in place. And so I persevered <laughs> through City College. Yeah. It, it was it was challenging. But I, I mean, and I'll just interject to say that, I mean, I think it's it's so important to say that and to recognize that, like, the circumstances that people are born into have such a tremendous effect uh, on where they end up. And that's why, for instance, you know, I do a lot of work in criminal justice reform. And, um, you know, we've really, like, for instance, changed the, the verbiage from second chance hiring afterwards to first chance, to fair chance hiring. Because, mm. you know, really, no, people that were born into this particular difficult circumstances, they never had a chance. And, you know, when you think of these people coming into this school that maybe mm -hmm. didn't have good educational foundations because of the neighborhood that they grew up in, you know, how much potential are we missing out by not individualizing education in a better way to really support those people and lift them up? Absolutely. And, you know, there's so much of a focus on like, well, they just need to try harder. But if you've never had a role model, you've never had a teacher who recognizes anything positive about you, where are they going to get the motivation to try? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So after City College, I didn't know what to do. So I went to upstate New York where my boyfriend, who became my husband, lived. And I started working first in a domestic violence shelter. And that was also one of the places where the City College, I had this really strong experience with racism. But at the domestic violence shelter, that's where it kind of smacked me in the face. Um, I can tell that story if you'd like. Yeah, please. Yeah, so part of my job there was 
accompanying woman who needed to go to the police station to file orders of protection. And I remember like, you know, I'm this brand new employee. It's like one of my first jobs out of college. I'm accompanying this woman to the police station. And as I walk into the station, I hear one of the police officers say, there is that N word and the B word <laughs> and their client. And I'm devastated. I'm wow. just kind of like, first, like, how am I going to be professional after they're saying this yeah. to me? Are they going to pay attention to me? Are they going to take this um, information from my client? And I get through it. I file everything with my client and I go back to the office and I break down because I'm convinced that I will never be able to be professional, that other people will never see me the way that I needed to be seen. And my supervisor at the moment heard what happened and saw me crying, empathized, but then she called the police chief and she laid into him. It was just like the most empowering, this kind of like, you don't have to put up with this and I'm going to be your ally and your advocate on your behalf. I, I wrote this book, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations. And in some ways, she was one of the people who made me see that it was actually possible to confront, confront it directly. Yeah. Wow. That's... uh that's really powerful to hear. And I, I love that you had that supervisor that was, you know, proactive and willing to do that and put themselves out there to, to really make the important point that needed to be made. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I did that work for a year and I loved it because it really felt like it was making a difference in the lives, primarily women that we saw. Um, but then it was like, I'm not sure this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And it doesn't pay well. So I got a job as a prison guard, which was probably the most traumatic thing to do. It was a prison guard for teenagers, male teenagers who had committed massive felonies. And like some of them had life sentences, even at like 13, 14, 15. And I did that work for a year and realized it was heartbreaking that we were not, as a prison guard, I was helping to maintain the system. I wasn't changing it. And I wasn't addressing the reason why these kids ended up where they were. And so after a year, I said I needed to do something different. I mean, just hearing what you were doing there, I mean, what happens to some juveniles in the system right now is just really disgusting and horrifying. And, you know, something that I'm certainly passionate about. My sister's very passionate about it. She's working on alternatives to juvenile detention in South Carolina. And, um, you know, just where my head is going with this, you know, there's, she's met kids that, you know, haven't been charged yet, but they have this 40 day holding period in South Carolina and it, it ruins their school year. And then that could ruin their education on an ongoing basis. And, um, she has this crazy statistic in South Carolina that they spend, uh, more in a year on keeping, uh, one of these juveniles in detention than it would cost to send them to college for four years. Isn't it crazy? And it's just imagine if we took that money and we said, let's give these kids some mental health work. Let's put some money into their families. So yes. some of the reasons why kids are doing the behaviors that they're doing could be addressed. Yeah. Addressing the root cause would be a lot better than just putting people in cages. So, you know, you talked earlier about mentors and how important they are. While I was doing these jobs, I had gone to SUNY Binghamton, which was State University of New York at Binghamton, right near where I was living. And I was taking college classes. Um, and one of my professors said, why are you here? What are you doing? Why aren't you applying to grad school? And I had never even considered applying. And she said, apply to grad school. I'm going to make sure that you get in. And once you have the interview day, come see me if you have any problems. 
I went to interview day. I was dressed completely wrong. You know, everyone was wearing business suits. I was wearing like a tropical colored <laughs> floral dress that my mom said, this is very professional. And I felt so out of place. I was crying in her office during the lunch break on interview day. And she like, you know, patched me up and said, go back out there. You definitely need to be in grad school. Help me get a fellowship. And she's the reason I'm here. Wow. It's incredible what how one person can really affect someone's life like that. And it's that embrace. I mean, it's just who knows where you would be without it. Who knows where others would be without people like that. Mm -hmm. So you were pushed in the right direction in terms of getting your graduate degree at, at Binghamton. Um, you got a PhD in clinical psychology. You know, what was that process like? I know that when you get that type of degree, there's a lot of like hands-on experience involved. You know, what was that overall experience and how did it impact you? So the clinical part working was, you know, that was easy. It was something I was used to doing in some ways because I'd already been working with domestic violence folks and counseling them. I wasn't at all worried about the psychology part of it. I think the hardest part for me was actually the relationships with professors and with uh, my fellow students. We had, I remember there was one professor who really didn't like me and I'm not quite clear why, but there were me and two other students of color um, kept like really trying to advocate for change and awareness around diversity in the program. And I would definitely say we were the three who were targeted. And my advisor, the person who helped me get into the program, ended up essentially adopting all of us and saying, you're going to be my students. You're going to work in my lab. I'm going to make sure you do well. But there was a lot of having to persist in saying, we're not going to be silenced about the things that aren't working well or acknowledging microaggressions when they happen. And we also got to choose research. Like my advisor made it really possible for us to choose research around the areas that we were interested in. So my research often looked at either racial bias or I did research on stigma, stigma around coping and illness and things like that. And it was lovely to be able to say, I can choose the things that I'm passionate about and actually make a career out of it. Yeah, that is such an important thing for, I think everyone to take into their career, find things that they're passionate about and ways to integrate them into their work. And um, I think you set a great example in that regard. And uh, I know that after you got your degree, you started an internship at Durham, North Carolina Veterans Hospital. Um, and that, that stint was interrupted. I'd be curious to hear some details. Yeah. So I'd been working at the internship. Um, it goes from August to August. And, you know, I'd had headaches all the time. And I was always like, oh, it's just a headache. I'm going to ignore it. I'm just working too hard. And then one day I was on the phone with a client. And it's a kind of client who would always call and say, hey, I'm so sorry. I need to like reschedule. And I kept rescheduling, rescheduling, rescheduling. I had a one-year-old at the time. And so one day she said, I promise I can come if you can stay until six. And I had been really committed. I'm going home to my baby. And I said, of course, I'll stay till six. Of course, she doesn't come, right? And then she calls at like 6.20 and she's saying, yes, can I reschedule? And I'm being super nice. Like, of course, no boundaries. Of course, I'll reschedule. And as I hung up the phone, I felt a pop. <laughs> and I had this aneurysm that burst in my head. And I was so lucky because the VA is right across the street from Duke Hospital. So I managed to pick up the phone and call the security guards and say, something's wrong. And they came and found me. And at that point, I'd been like start, starting to lose consciousness. I'd been throwing up all the time. And they got me over to Duke and I had brain surgery the next day. 
And then I had to take six weeks off. I, I was like the miracle case really in recovering from an aneurysm. Um, but I took six weeks off from work and then went back to the internship and was able to finish. I mean, let's not gloss over that too much. That's a really scary thing that happened. Um, you know, how did that impact you mentally even getting through it? So getting through it, one of the things that I always mourn a little bit, because it's something that I think most people don't recognize, is I'm really clear that I am not as smart as I was before the aneurysm, right? So I, and I mentioned before I was gifted, and now I'm like a little bit above average, but I'm aware of the places where I don't have the same mental acuity that I used to have. And it's okay. You know, it's, I'm, I'm still quite functional and doing well. It's just a really interesting thing to notice about myself. And it meant that I had to change my understanding of who I was, how quickly I can do things, um, how flexible I could be. So that was one piece. And but when did you point, start to notice that? I would say like within the first year as I was recovering, like I'm the kind of person, like I, I literally wrote my dissertation in three days. There was a whole story about the reason why, but I ended up having to write it in three days. And I was the kind of person who could do that. But after the aneurysm, it was like, whoa, everything is taking longer. It's a struggle. Mm. Like my attention is no longer, it's almost like I have ADHD as a result. It's really yeah. strange. Um, so I started noticing really quickly. And then memory, like I used to remember everything, like I knew every single phone number. And now I love smartphones. Yep, I know how that goes. Yeah, the other thing that I, that changed, and I think it's really important to notice, in some ways I was glad that the aneurysm popped and it was just random chance, right? But it popped right when I hung up the phone after telling that client, I'm going to meet you again, knowing that you're not going to show up again. Because then I realized I need to start doing some self-care and setting some boundaries in my life. And that's been really important in the long part of my journey. Like, how do I help people, but without overextending myself and make do it in a way that's sustainable? Yes. I mean, preach, right? We, everyone needs to hear that. Setting sustainable, healthy boundaries is, is so important to being able to make it through life in a, in a good way. Right. And especially like the folks that you work with the people that you have in your podcast, people who are activists, we're always so kind of like, we've got to change the world. There's so much to do that we don't take that time to say, but you got to be around to do it. Yeah, exactly. Self-care is so important and people are on all sorts of different journeys around it. But um, just when you can be conscious about it and acknowledge it is a great, great step. Mm -hmm. So after you recovered from the aneurysm, you finished the internship? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I finished internship, then I worked in a prison. <laughs> I went back to a prison, right? And this time, this time I was working in a woman's prison, and I did that for a year. I stopped because I had my third baby. Um, or actually, yeah, my third baby. So I did that for a year, and it was, again, really transformative, kind of really cementing the there but for the grace of God go I. Because one of the things that I got really clear about was that a lot of the women I was working with, and this was like death row all the way to minimum security. So I, I got to see everything. But a lot of the women, if I told myself, if I were in their situation with the resources that they had, would I have found a different path? Probably not, right? So it made it hard to judge people just because of the choices they make and really think about how can I empower them to give them more resources? Yeah, I mean, what that's really important work. And um in criminal justice reform work in general, you know, I find that there's so many people still that are just judging people for the fact that they are in prison or, or in the system. And I mean, I think, 
you don't know the circumstances. You also can't judge people on their worst mistake. And so, you know, it, I, I hear people question some people that like you work in a prison all the time and stuff like that. People that I work with and, you know, they just, some people don't understand. And I think my, like myself, for instance, um, was privileged to not have any involvement with the system growing up for a variety of reasons. And, um, but once I realized what was going on and I was aware of that privilege, like I just was been disgusted over what what's going on there. And so I can, can only imagine what you saw working in this prison for a year, working in the other prison for a year. And, um, just really thank you for that work. No, I feel honored really. You know, if I have any sense of helping people at least be seen and understood about their experiences, it felt meaningful. And for some folks, we were able to have an impact that was a bit different than what they'd normally experienced. So you spent this year as a psychologist at the women's prison in Raleigh, and I'm sure that was incredibly impactful on you. Where did that take you next? Well, part of the challenge I had was I wanted children. And so... At some point, I ended up with three children, and I really wanted to spend some time with them. So I, I actually stopped working and said, I'm going to just really be with my children while they were young. And at the same time, my husband at the time got a job in California, so we moved to California. And when I moved there, I started, I got involved in nonviolent communication, and it was something that I could do with my kids. Um, I brought them to retreats. My poor baby went to five different retreats the first year of her life. Um, and nonviolent communication shifted me from doing only like the clinical psychology path into how can I actually connect with folks and have an impact on a lot of different systems in many ways. Yeah. So that's really important work. Can you tell me more about nonviolent communication and, and what it is to sort of the, the layman? Sure. So it's been around for an incredibly long time. The founder of, of nonviolent communication, Dr. Marshall Rosenberg was also a clinical psychologist. And he was like really active in the 60s when he saw what was happening with the civil rights movement in the US. And one of the things he talked about was he would like look at all the news reports of black folks like getting beaten, getting killed, continuing to show up and say, we are not going away. We're going to persist. We're going to, we're going to keep advocating for our needs and doing it nonviolently. And he was like, what does it take to make someone be able to do that, to be able to stay connected to their needs, know what's important to them and ask for it, but not in a way that's putting down the other person or denigrating the other person. And so that's what was his motivation for basically synthesizing a whole bunch of bodies of knowledge into what we now call nonviolent communication. And I like to tell people it's essentially a way of thinking about the world and about people in the world. It's a story about human beings. And the story basically says everything we do is an attempt to meet a need and that all human beings have the exact same needs. And if we just take those two things, if you do something I don't like, instead of saying, "Ooh, you're a bad person, I can say, huh, what's leading you to do that? Yeah. What's important to you? And if I can find a thing that's important to you that I can also recognize as important to me, I start to have a little bit more compassion and I can start to say, can we find a different strategy that will get you what you want? Because I know it's important because it's important to me too, but isn't so costly to me. So it's been really effective in addressing conflict and and also with people who are wanting to do inner work, but I'm really interested on non communication for conflict. Yeah, it's 
that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. And um, I know you're you're specifically uh, working with Bay Area nonviolent communication, starting out as a collaborative trainer, um, and over your 14 years there, also becoming the executive director. Um, what? Tell me about that organization and um, what that experience was like overall, and where it led you. Yeah. So the organization has shifted now, but when I was working there, it was incredibly inspiring. And one of the reasons I was so, so eager to work there was it was one of the few places where the folks who were looking at nonviolent communication were interested in applying it to like big world issues, right? So not just a lot of times when people learn nonviolent communication, it's around how do I make my family life better? How am I a better parent? And those are all important areas. But I was really thinking about how do we end racism with this, right? How do we address prison violence? How do we address economic insecurity? So, and the folks at Bay and VC were really interested in looking at those questions and theorizing about those questions. And so I got involved there first as a student myself, and then I got invited to teach and eventually, like you mentioned, to step into training and doing leadership there. I really like the perspective that you brought into that work in terms of seeing the other areas that it could be applied to and how wide of an application it could potentially have. Um, you know, is that where you sort of went with the next step in your career? Or? Yes, absolutely. So the first place I started was thinking about how can we use this theory to talk about race, to talk about racism, and to really be able to address the challenges that oh my gosh, this country has, and really worldwide, but especially in the US, around effective dialogue about racism. And a lot of times, you know, I'm sure your listeners have heard a lot about white fragility, for instance, but how do we empower folks to be able to talk about it in a way that isn't watering it down to make you feel comfortable, but isn't also like beating you over the head so that you have zero interest in wanting to have this conversation? And how do we empower white folks to step up and be able to hold themselves when they're activated so that they can stay in these dialogues and actually create change. And that was the first place that I started applying this in. And yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's really interesting. would love to dig into that. And I think, you know, for me, a place that I've seen an ability to create empathy and change thought patterns is with film content. Um, you know, I'm really interested in integrating important messages into film and hearing you talking about, you know, the balance between not hitting people over the head with it, but also getting the message across. I think that film provides a good opportunity for that as well. And so that that's an area uh, that I've sort of delved into in that respect. But, you know, I'm curious, what were your efforts like in terms of uh, trying to teach those things to this audience? Yeah. Well, I just want to say as an aside, since you love film, there's actually an NBC trainer who's been working, I think, with Warner Brothers on script writing and like really being the NBC consultant to a whole bunch of children's cartoons. And so this one request got like released in Ireland and really popular and totally based on NBC. So. Wow. I'll have to learn more about that. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. I like the idea that it's sort of changing the way that people go about creating when you talk about it, like being in screenwriting and things like that. Like let's change the general ways that we're doing this. Let's incorporate these important methods into the, just how these things work. And it's like the audience may not notice it, but it's going to impact them. Absolutely. And especially if it's impacting kids, like if we can get away from the good, bad, you know, um, framing of everything to, gosh, what is, what's important to that person? Why are they doing this thing that's not working for me? 
and we can model that, it's amazing. Yeah, and you bring up that good bad thing. It just really sticks with me right now because I've got a three year old that loves to talk about good guys and bad guys. Yeah. And it's just like, and my wife and I were like dealing with it. Like, how do we keep him from some of the things that have violence that like he wants to look at or watch or play with? And then it's like, how do we sort of break this whole good and bad guy thing? And what's the right direction and path to take? So we're in the process of trying to figure that out. If you're enjoying this episode, I would greatly appreciate if you could review, like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platforms. Your engaged support goes a long way in helping the show grow and getting our impactful guests heard. Now back to the show. It's a lifelong journey. I've got my children, my youngest is now 18. And I think they really internalize, like, you know, people are not necessarily good or bad. And they're always empathic, but it's still, oh, it's a struggle. Everything they watch, everything they consume is in that good, bad binary. Yep, exactly. So kind of going back, though, to like, where did I take this passion of mine for NVC and social change, a number of places. Um, one of the things like I've been doing recently is working with folks on how do you respond to microaggressions? Because this comes up all the time. Like somebody says something and it could be like, you've misgendered me or um, one of the ones I get a lot is like, you're so articulate, right? Um, how do you respond to that? How do you let someone know that what they're doing isn't actually working for you? And then if you're the person who did it, how do you show up for that dialogue in a way that's not about, no, no, you just don't understand. Look at my intention. Make me feel better. Now I feel really bad about myself. And I've been really coaching people and helping them have these dialogues, practice the dialogues, and then also working in organizations where DEI stuff is really important to show them how they can have these organizations with leadership and between peers. Are there any elements of this nonviolent communication that you know, you could briefly share as sort of more of the concept so that maybe listeners that want to dig in deeper have an understanding of where they're going or maybe some quick tips? Yeah, absolutely. So let's take an example of a microaggression because if I work through one, I think it will make it really clear. So one of the ones that comes up a lot in my classes is why can't I ask somebody where they're from, right? And this is one that I know a lot of the folks that I talk to in the United States who are Latino or Asian are like, I'm so tired of that question because it completely erases the fact that I'm American. I am from here. Why do you think I'm not? Um, so when I talk to people about that, one of the challenges I have is like, if you don't understand why that statement is problematic, it's because you're looking at it only from your perspective. And so one of the quick tips I have for people is to break down what's happening at three levels. I call it three levels of observation. The first level is, what did you say? So where are you from? And if I just say that, it's like, okay, it's not necessarily problematic. There are times when you can ask that question, it works really well. Other times the person gets really annoyed. I asked you today, so. <laughs> oh, yes, but you were allowed to, because we talked about it. <laughs> but then the second level is what I call the internal level. What's going on for that person hearing that where like their history or their background that might make that question painful. And so an example I would give for the where you're from question is, it might be that I'm at the grocery store and somebody comes up to me and starts speaking to me in Chinese and I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm from the US, I don't speak Chinese. Why would you assume that I know this? Or 
I'm walking down the street and the minute people look at me, they say, hey, go back to where you came from or, you know, did you just get off the boat? So there are all of these assumptions that people make because of the way that I look, that means I must not be from here. And so when you ask me where you're from, it brings up those memories and that's painful. So your listener can start wondering, like, what's going on for this person's experiences that I might not have that might make this statement painful for them in a way that it's not for me? The third level I call the systemic level, which is looking at some of the patterns that happen in our society and what those patterns mean. So when people talk about where you're from and it's just an innocuous question, I often talk back to remember what happened in the U.S. during World War II, right? So we had Germans and we had Japanese folks living in the U.S. Japanese folks were the ones who were interned. They were the ones where just because of the way they looked, it was e easy to say, you're not from here. Therefore, we're going to take away all your property, take away everything and lock you up. That didn't happen to German Americans as much living in the U.S. as it did to the Japanese Americans, solely based on where you were on the assumption that you're not from here. And so that question is loaded. It's bringing up pain, not just at that, you know, well, why are you asking me that? But and the history I have had with it, but the history that my people have had with it. So helping yeah. people look at what are the different levels that I can analyze the statement helps us understand a little bit more why it's so painful. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. I think that'll be helpful for listeners, especially that are looking to dig in deeper and to also just try to be aware and conscious when you're talking to a new person and, um, you know, try to think of things beyond your own perspective. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've worked a lot in nonviolent communication. Um, I know you also, you know, work just as a clinical or specifically as a clinical psychologist um, with the city and county of San Francisco. Um, you know, in that, I believe that's something that you're still active in. It is. And it's part of my, you know, almost like psychology for social change. I do NBC for social change, psychology for social change. And what I do there with the city and county, I work as a psychologist with the folks who are disenfranchised, so mostly unhoused population. And essentially, if you're getting county assistant money, the county says, maybe there's something else going on. That's the reason why you can't house yourself or you can't take care of yourself and you can't work. So they send everyone gets screened and sent to my department. And we assess, does someone actually have a mental illness? And can we advocate for them to get social security? Because our social security system is messed up. You know, I have, I've seen cases where social security says, well, you have an appointment. I'm going to email you. I'm going to mail you this appointment. The person's unhoused. They're not checking mail regularly. They miss the appointment. And then social security says they didn't show up. They don't get that appointment and completely ignores all of the different mental health reasons and the logistical reasons why the person can't show up. Yeah. So I work in a department that tries to change that. That's, that's really nice to hear. I mean, there's so many instances of that in this system, like not taking people's circumstances into account. It makes me think of the probation system where if you miss a phone call, it doesn't matter if you were in class or something, you know, that you get a strike of some sort. And um, I think that that is just so important to be aware of. And I th I'm curious as to the balance that you like to take in terms of like, let's maximize the experience people are getting within the current mess of a system we have versus like actually trying to change the system and the, the walls that you can end up banging your head against with that. Oh, I love this question. 
I think for me, this is part of why I have both of these jobs, right? So working with the city and county is my kind of like saving the starfish and putting them back in the ocean, helping like individual people get housing and get support. Working with my nonviolent communication work is actually working and helping people learn how to change systems. And so that work is very much around, I just went to Brazil, for instance, and did a 10-day retreat there. And the retreat was just random folks who said, I want to sign up for this retreat. But at that retreat, we had the most powerful experience around um, transforming dialogues about race that had happened in the community. Some of it were things like someone saying, I have, I have a group for folks who identified as Black. And the history of Black folks in Brazil is really complicated. And I remember people coming to this table saying, I don't think I belong here because I don't know if I'm Black or not. Like when I go, the Brazilian government told me I didn't qualify as Black as I'm too white. But when I apply for jobs, they tell me I'm too Black and I don't qualify for the job. And it's just like, where do I belong? So helping people see themselves and see that, no, you actually belong and you have a voice. And then in this community, I helped. Um, start a process where they could process some huge microaggressions and racial pain that had happened three years ago and have a dialogue in the community about it and then start the process of how do we want to work with this? How do we want to continue to evaluate ourselves and change what's happening in our community? Yeah, and uh, it's such important work. And again, thank you for it. Yeah. For me, part of why it's important to do both of these works is because only working on the long-term social change pieces, that's like vision. That's like really putting it out there into the future. Can I actually do something? It might be 10 years before I see the change and I can, give a, I can feel hopeless. I can feel despair. So when I can work with a client and see a change in like six months or a year, they balance out. It kind of, this helps me stay fueled and energized so I can go for that long-term change. Yeah, no, I... I truly can imagine that and take perspective on that. I mean, being able to do those two different sides of the work in the conjunction of what, what that does for you mentally and the different angles that you're seeing the system from, I think certainly would provide motivation and perspective. So you've been working with the Center for Nonviolent Communication for about nine years now. Uh, can you tell me about that organization? Sure. So Marshall Rosenberg, who I mentioned was the founder of Nonviolent Communication, started the Center for Nonviolent Communication, CNVC, as kind of the vehicle to spread the work worldwide. And they basically certify trainers in nonviolent communication around the world. I think there's something like 700 trainers now in quite a few, maybe 30 countries, quite a few countries around the world. And they also um, put on events. They put on these retreats like the one I went to in Brazil so that people can learn about the work. And it's a really interesting organization because Marshall Rosenberg died a few years ago. And just like every organization where there was this like really charismatic founder, they're in transition. And part of the transition is understanding how can they actually serve and do this work in other parts of the world, especially the global South, in ways that are not perpetuating colonization. And I think that's a conversation that's really big in the organization now. As part of my work there, I work as not just a certified trainer and doing trainings, but I also am an assessor and help certify people in the process. And I've decided to only work with people who identify as members of the global majority, what we would call BIPOC here in the United States, as a way of making sure that the people who have access to this work aren't people who have money or people who find ease navigating predominantly white circles. Yeah. 
That's incredibly important. We need to bridge as much as we can closer to equality whenever we can. So, you know, I thank you that. And, and speaking of that, you know, I recently had on the podcast, Sarah Payton, uh, you've put on um, a class with her leveraging self-compassion to counter white supremacy. Um, can you tell me about that course and how that came about and, you know, sort of the essence of it? Yeah. So Sarah and I have been working together now for quite a number of years and we co-wrote our workbook that goes with my main book, The Anti-Racist Heart Together. And one of the things that we realized was that we love, love, love the idea of being part of tearing down white supremacy. But one of the challenges is how people have been doing it. Not everyone, right? But some folks. And for a lot of folks, it's like, I don't know how to show up and hold, like if I'm a black person, how can I show up in ways that hold compassion for the places where I am not speaking up, where I'm silent in the face of white supremacy and racism, or the places where I speak up with a lot more anger and rage and, and maybe do more harm? If I'm a white person, how can I show up in ways that hold myself with care for the mistakes I make, the harm that I've caused, and still show up and stay engaged in the process? And the class is meant to address both sides, like both the folks from the global majority and white folks in finding a path forward so that we can work together. Because it's not going to be one side or the other. It's not the, only the responsibility of global majority folks to end white supremacy. And we are not going to leave it only to white folks to end it because it's going to end up not necessarily addressing the needs that we have, right? So how can we empower folks to hold themselves with the kind of consciousness and care that they need to work together to attack this problem? Such deep, important work that attacks the root issues within our divisive society. And I just, I'm really glad that it exists. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about the work, you know, you have had people on your, on your podcast who are doing amazing, like, you know, changing laws, changing policies kind of work. And that is so necessary. Like, I don't believe white supremacy can change without these kinds of laws and um, legal remedies happening. And at the same time, I also think that we need to find a way to reach people's hearts because this is part of what's happening. As we have these wonderful laws happening, the backlash has been huge and people are now kind of doing their own counter, like let's let's shore up these white supremacy policies and laws. And so how can I actually reach some of those people as well so that we don't have this continuous process of changing laws and then trying to undo those changes that keep happening. So I see both as necessary, and I'm really glad that I found the place where I think I'm having an impact. Yeah, that's so important to find the place where you can be the most impactful. And uh, like you said, appreciate the work that's going on in the other areas that helps you do what you do. Yeah. And saw that you have a course going on right now with uh, Sarah called Fierce Compassion, Skills for Anti-Racist Conversations. And then as you've mentioned, you have this book, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations. Um, you know, I'd love to just hear about the book and, you know, maybe how this uh, course plays in. Mm -hmm. Sure. So the course came out of the book. So I'll talk about the book first. Um, and I love the story of how the book came about. Sarah called me up one day and said, I'd love to write a book with you. And now Sarah is like amazing, has a couple of books published, well-known books. And I said, if I write a book with you, it's going to be Sarah's book. You know, everyone will be like, Roxanne, Sarah's book, really it's Sarah's book. And I don't want to do that, especially as a black person, because I will be overshadowed. And she said, that makes total sense. Write two books. And I said, okay, I'm going to write two books, which was kind of crazy in hindsight. 
But I wrote the first book, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, to basically support somebody who wanted both an understanding of this approach that I'm taking, right? One that's based on Martin Luther King Jr.'s beloved community. How am I creating a world where everyone can thrive and we're not casting anybody out in order for that to happen? And also gives enough of a primer on communication skills, understanding unconscious bias, and this model of dialogue that I propose that helps us to have these really difficult conversations that can lead to conversations for both just being known about something that happened all the way to, we need to find a solution. We need to come up with a better strategy. So that's the first book. And then when Sarah and I talked about writing the joint book, The Anti-Racist Heart, we were like, you know, a lot of people get the concepts, but when they try to implement it, they fall apart. They don't know how to do it, or they just keep running into barriers. And so the second book is a workbook that really helps people look at the places where they get stuck and find exercises to help undo those places so that they can actually implement the knowledge in the first book. And so then we did the class to help build on that, right? So the class is helping folks actually start to explore with our guidance some of the concepts that we talk about in both books. Yeah, I mean, I think that that must be a really interesting experience. And, um, you know, certainly have the book on my re upcoming reading list. I'm looking forward to it. And so it sounds like we should start with how to have anti-racist conversations and then go to the anti-racist heart. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I can't say we did write them so you could read them separately. Um, but if you wanted like a more in-depth understanding of the theory, you'd start the conversations. Got it. I mean, I, this type of work is just so important, I think, for everyone that can get their hands on it to to delve into it whenever they get the chance. Um, and, you know, I thank you and Sarah both for those books and also for bringing people together in the classes. I mean, the ability to dig deeper into this work, I think, is only makes the book that much more effective. Thank you. I remember there's an elder, a Black elder, who has been now working with me since 2007. And when she started, she said, I signed up for your course because I didn't believe it was possible for these conversations to happen. I didn't believe as a Black person I could speak my truth to white people. And now, you know, 14, 15, 16 years later, she's like, it's possible. It's real. Change can happen. True, incredible impact that, you know, you're directly having your work, all the people you work with that it's having on society. And thank you for doing that important work to push us in the right direction. And um, speaking of that and the change that you have affected, is there any particular story where it just really hits you like, wow, I'm really affecting change? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one example is working with, and this kind of goes back to my early roots, right? I did a year long program for in online communication for a program called the Freedom Project in uh, Washington state. And it's a program that brings nonviolent communication into the prisons. Many of the folks who are teaching the program and for instance, the executive director are former prisoners themselves and or former in, formerly incarcerated people. And their job is to help people learn how to survive and get support once they leave the prison so that they don't end up going back in and that they can both explore themselves and transform how they're seeing themselves in relation to the world. And it's just the most amazing program. If you want to talk to someone who's doing amazing work, I recommend them. And so this nine month, this program that I did included 
a class that was four and a half months of people learning the concepts and then four and a half months of people thinking, how can I take this work into my community? Not just like think about it, but actually apply it to my community. And that program was just amazing. Part of it was creating space for people to, to grieve, to really grieve the impact of this criminal justice system that we have in the U.S. and how it rips families apart, like what it does to people, right? So having a way where people can leverage self-compassion and understand why they made the choices they did, why their family members made the choices they did, and start to rebuild their families is huge. So that was the first part of the program that I found really impactful. But the second part was helping people see that they could actually be a force for change in their communities. So people who didn't have a high school education, who went through the program, and who are now realizing, I can actually talk to the youth and not just from this position of like, you don't want to be what I what I was, right? Which is one of the ways that people often told you can get back to the community, but actually say, I can actually help you learn how to speak differently. I can help you learn what to do with the anger that's inside of you and express it differently. So that they're telling me like, we're helping keep some of our youth out of prisons now, right? And we're helping families stay out of prison. So like someone gets out and they're struggling with what it means to return to the community. They're, they now have the skills to support their family members and other community members in actually staying out and thriving. I'm seeing people who are staying in college, getting degrees, and just thriving, having done this work. And so for me, that kind of grassroots change, where it's not just changing individual lives, but then this ripple effect that's happening, it's changing communities, changing systems, it's huge. The impact of that work, I mean, first off, self-compassion is so important to, to any growth, I think, in general. And then the work of these people going back into their own communities is, that's as impactful as it gets. You know, people that are part of the community that experienced it, that's bottom-up change, that is, you know, communal change, that's how it sparked. Um, and I can only imagine where that can go in the future. And um really glad that those people are are able to find these ways to give back by sort of reframing the perspective. Absolutely. It's been inspiring for me. Like the Freedom Project was started by somebody who just regular folks, I don't think they were attorneys, but now their executive director is a attorney, someone who was formerly incarcerated, like people who are just like, I am taking my life and I am modeling what's possible. And people without education who are saying, I now feel comfortable like going in legis going to a legislator and saying, hey, you need to listen to me. Here's what needs to happen and like actually helping to change laws. So it's so huge. And I think those individuals sort of realizing the power of their experience um, yes. and where that can take them and that they are truly, you know, what my sister calls, maybe the other people call it as well, credible messengers, you know, people with experience that are now messengers for a cause. Like it's so much more impactful that they've been where they've been. Absolutely. You know, it's come up a few times in our conversation that you've had some great mentors over the years. You know, anyone else that you want to sort of shout out as a really impactful mentor in your life? You know, I would say my, the mentor, the one of the co-founders of Bay NVC, uh, Mickey Cashman, Mickey and her sister Imbal Cashman, Imbal died, unfortunately, of breast cancer a few years ago. You know, I, I shared a bit of my story. And when I, even though I was doing all the right things, I often tell people before I learned NVC, I was a good girl. I was a kind of like, what do I need to do to make sure that, you know, people like me and I have the opportunity to like, you know, kind of live the American dream. And I joined the leadership program that Mickey and Nabal co-founded 
And when I was there, they were first like really committed to supporting black folks, people of color in knowing that this is work that would matter to them and also helping us step into leadership. But I wanted to assist in this program. And when I came to assist, Mickey and Bal said, no, I don't want you to assist because we don't trust you. And I said, what? <laughs> you know, like, I, I'm a good girl. What do you mean you don't trust me? And they said, you always, always, always take care of other people. You're always trying to like figure out what it is that other people want. And we don't trust that you're going to take care of your needs. And not only is it not good for us, because then we can't trust, can we really ask you something? Because you're going to say yes. But it's also not the model of leadership that we want to see. And, you know, we need to trust that you can actually advocate for your own needs, set your boundaries before we will say yes. And, you know, they said that and then they gave me a chance. But that combination of them letting me know that a leader is somebody who also is not just serving, but also modeling how to be in the world was huge. And then also they were the people who made it okay for me to grieve. I remember telling Imbal, like one of the experiences I had with racism that was really impactful for me. And I can tell it like this, where I'm just like, oh, here's this thing that happened and it's really neutral. And she just stopped and looked at me and she put her hand on my chest and she cried. And I was like, wait, this is something you can cry about? This is something, you know, even as a psychologist, I didn't let myself do that. So they helped me bring the humanity into the work that I do. That's tremendous. I mean, the work is already so important in itself. Bringing that human element is incredibly impactful. And Mickey still is, yeah. Well, uh, if you'd like, you can ask me a question now. So I know like one of the, what I understand from you is that you're really invested in helping to create system change. And one of the ones that's important to me is really addressing racism and all of the many ways that it manifests, not just systemically, but also in how we relate to each other's. And so I'm really curious around one of the places where you might still find yourself struggling to unpack and um, distance yourself from some of the beliefs that white supremacy has laid on us. Yeah, you know, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. So, you know, there's so much history there around slavery and so many other divisive things. And just growing up in that environment, you know, you learn certain biases and certain things and you know, having lived in other places in the country since then, it certainly has helped open me up. But I sometimes find those sort of grew up in a very red Southern state, things creeping up in my mind. You know, I'm, I try to be, I try to be very, very conscious of it, but, you know, it's something that I still sort of reckon with, uh, just where I was brought up and how that affects me. And, you know, I'm so thankful that I had tremendous parents and, you know, was the, the grandchild of Holocaust survivors that really helped me understand the, how awful it is to be prejudiced in any capacity and mm -hmm. to, to build sort of that uh, compassion within me early. But there is very clearly stuff that came from growing up there that, um, you know, started me off in the wrong direction. And um, I certainly have improved over the years. And I'd say that you know, in our society today, there's people have made mistakes many years ago that often haunt them in the future. And I think it's important yeah. for us to remember that people can grow, they can become educated, you know, going from growing up in Charleston my whole life to going to school in Boston, Boston University, um, that quickly provided new perspectives. I met a lot of more diverse people than I'd met previously and started to get a, at least a little bit of an understanding then of 
what different life experiences are like, um, more so than I had. And, um, so I'd say in terms of like where I struggle with, it's just sort of the Southern roots and how that, you know, became part of my foundation. Oh, I, I'm so appreciating you naming this and something that you said really stood out to me, which is that people change. That's one of the fundamental beliefs about NBC. And I think that change happens when we do just what you're doing. It's kind of acknowledge. Yes, sometimes these roots are deep and I have to keep working in it, but it's, it's, an, it's an ongoing, never-ending process and change happens. Thank you for naming it this way. Of course, yeah. No, thank you. And absolutely, I mean, to not name your own biases is just keeping you from finding ways past them. And um, I think it's, it's so important for all of us to understand that we do have unconscious biases and that we need to try to figure out what they are, acknowledge them and take them into your everyday life, being aware of them. Absolutely. Really appreciate that question and, and digging in there. Um, you've done some really incredible work throughout your career. Um, and I'm sure you're incredibly proud and grateful for your, your family. You know, if everything were to end tomorrow in whatever that means to you, what else are you most grateful or most proud of? You named it my family. I, <laughs> I have, I had three children. I had one son who died of suicide and my two children who are remaining. I have so much hope for the world when I see them, you know, they're, they're empathic. Um, they're able to, like, I've never heard my children misgender someone. And I think like even just that tiny little bit is something around, this is what the future will be. Like when this way of thinking about the world and approaching the world is part of who you are, that's when change happens. So I feel a lot of hope for the future when I think of how our kids are being raised. Yeah, I, I think that's really important for just the world to acknowledge right now. We do have great youth coming up with important principles and a lot better than they have been in the past. And so I talk about it in the intro to the podcast that our media is so focused on the negative, but there's so much good happening and there's so many changes happening in perspective and mindset. So it's important for us to have faith in the future. Absolutely. And, you know, every generation is a little bit different and our youth are definitely way beyond where we were. Yeah, agreed. So, you know, the big question that I asked for at the end of every show, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? Uh, it would be changing white supremacy culture beliefs. And I think it would reverberate because white supremacy culture beliefs are founded, like they're grounded in this idea that some people have more than, some people deserve more than, and some people less than. And if I could truly create a world where we all believe that everybody deserves what they needed to thrive, that changes everything, right? It means that I would want to fix climate change so that nobody has to live ravaged by the impact of climate change. I would make our laws more just, I would make um, our food distribution systems, like no one would go hungry if everyone deserves, you know? So it's, it's just changing this fundamental belief that some people are better than others. I mean, what really stood out to me there was just everyone deserves what they need to thrive. And that's something that's been developing in me as well. And um, just that that mindset of it doesn't matter if you're red or blue or right or left or, you know, if whatever your politics are, you know, even if you don't believe in 
government subsidies and things like that. Like we should all, we have the resources to take care of everyone to the capacity where they don't have to worry about survival on a daily basis. And that truly is going to unlock so much human potential. When you said we have the resources to take care of everyone, I think people don't get that. You know, we have so bought into scarcity and we do. It's like there's no reason someone should be hungry in this country or unhoused. Yeah. So we need to change our fundamental belief. Everyone deserves what they need to thrive. Absolutely. So that would certainly make our world a better place. I hope we're on track for that, on track for people gaining more empathy and um, just really understanding that as humans, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. So people listening, you know, how can they best support you, your impact, your work? I would say, well, for sure, go to the book's website, antiracistconversations.com, and there you can find out about both how to have anti-racist conversations and the anti-racist art. And then I would also say, you know, just start learning, start being curious about nonviolent communication. Watch one of the videos on my website. You can also go to my personal website, roxannemanning.com. Um, take a class, do something so that we can start learning how to change the consciousness in which we're tackling some of these problems. And my sense is that when people get it, they also find other ways to engage and support the work, but just start changing the way we're thinking about some of these issues. Yeah. That it's a great, great way to leave us off. And, you know, I thank you so much for the incredible, impactful work that you're doing. Um, just changing mindsets and perspectives goes such an incredibly long way. Um, and, you know, I, I look forward to continuing our conversation. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are the Answer. If you enjoyed the episode, share it with friends and reviews or subscriptions on your favorite platforms go a long way to help the show grow. I want to share these incredible people and their remarkable work with as many others as possible. Thanks for your support. For more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com.